0: Podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. And now we also share this not only through these recordings, but we provide these lessons live on YouTube every Sunday morning and also available throughout the week. We do this because Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Well, we are nearing the end of our study of the book of 2 Timothy, And class teacher Doug Brady is naming this lesson In Season and Out of Season. It is taken from 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. We will continue to learn about the teaching that Paul is giving to young Timothy, who is the pastor of a church. It is included in the scriptures so that all who are in positions of this type learn and follow. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would love to have you as a guest and to our class if you are in the area. Our class begins at 9.15 a.m., and we attend the church service immediately following well, I see that Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This lesson looks back at the very beginning of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and we will remind you of what that verse says, and as Doug begins his lesson. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And now, here's my good friend, Doug Brady.
1: Now, after making such an important doctrinal, truthful, far-reaching statement, what is Paul going to say next? Remember, as we look at this statement here, it has three key Doctrinal underpinnings. Three key. Number one, the scripture is breathed out by God. That means it's inspired. God is responsible for writing it. Number two, it is inherent. But number three, we learned last week, it is sufficient for any needs of the human race. There's nothing more needed than the Bible. The Bible stands alone as the only living written work. Now, I know there are some people who went to Harvard and who think they are brilliant, who has told you, no, the Constitution is a living document. That's a lie. Only living document we have in our hands or access to is the Bible. And also, we need to remember, when it says all Scripture is profitable... If we shy away from certain parts of the Bible, we cheat ourselves. And we cheat those we know. We must allow the entirety of God's Word to be able to permeate, guide, and enrich our lives. And once we recognize the need for that, I think our view on the Scriptures will change. So now, for Timothy, what is he going to say? Well, let's look at this first verse I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, that sounds to me rather ominous. It sounds rather strong and dramatic. And the reason it sounds that way is because it is. We're going to break this down, and then I'm going to try and give you an example look at this phrase, or these two words, solemnly charged. That's only one word in the Greek. It is diamarturomai. And diamarturomai means to give almost a command, religiously to charge. And in Paul's culture, this was a very, very strong word. One of the other times it's used in the Greek New Testament is found in Luke 16, 27 through 28, where it says, And he said, That is, he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Now, what he is saying is a conversation. The rich man who died, and he's talking to Abraham across the divide in a place called, in Greek, Hades, in Hebrew, Sheol. And he's talking to Abraham, and he's referring to him as Father Abraham. And he says, I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they also will not come to this place of torment. This word, warn, is the same word as Paul used to solemnly charge. And I want you to see that this is a serious word. Paul is seeking to impress upon Timothy the gravity of what he is fixing to say or preparing to say. Why is it that Paul would do this? Well, Paul knows that Timothy has great moral and spiritual qualities, but he knows something else. He knows that he lacks a dogged perseverance and a strong moral courage that Paul had. And so he is trying to build that into this man, Timothy. And I want you to see that. And we should understand the gravity of this statement because it's not just a charge to Timothy. It's also a charge to us. And it carries a great degree of urgency to us even more because we are living in, more, in the latter days, unlike Timothy. Timothy and Paul maybe thought they were, if they were to see the perversion that's going on in our nation today, I, want, I tried to think of what an example of this, something like this would be. And what if we were here just as we were today, and all of a sudden the back door bursts open, and in walks a man wearing a completely outfit of white, a white suit, white socks, white shoes, white belt. This man I know because he was instrumental And involved in my father's salvation. He baptized my father. He married my mother and my father. When I went down to make a public profession of faith, he was the one who took my hand. When I was baptized, he was the one who put me under the water. And when I was confirmed as a deacon, he was the one who was there and put hands on me and prayed over me. That's the man, Dr. Criswell. And if he's coming in there, probably Jack Polk is following right behind him. (laughs) But can you imagine him coming up here, standing halfway right past dawn, pointing his finger at me the way he's been known to point, and he says, Doug, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. And then what follows in verse 2. That's something that's very... Moving, motivational, when somebody like that says, and this is the Apostle Paul. Maybe at this time there was no one closer to God than Paul. God took Paul up into heaven and let him see the third heavens. He said, I saw things I can't even tell you about. That's how serious this is. And the charge is solemn. Now, what's the next thing he says about this charge? In the presence of God. What does he mean? I charge you in the presence of God. Were they actually in the physical presence of the Lord at the time? No. In fact, they couldn't be. He was in prison, and he was writing to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. And so we need to understand, though, this word, enopion, in in the Greek, has this idea of being under someone's constant gaze. He says, Timothy, you need to realize... The Lord is watching you. You know, when you think about that, can you think about some times when you wish the Lord wasn't watching you? Oh, yeah. Yes, some of us may be more than others, but uh, the fact is, that's what He is doing. And it's mean, this word is meant to identify that someone is looking on. Now, who is looking on, does He say? One, two, three. So, how many members of the Trinity? Three. Three you're looking on? Two. One. Two of the three. you ask Two, you're saying. Now, okay. We need to have a vote here. This is, you know, uh, this, we're going to call it a democratic republic. I don't want to be a democracy that's a dictatorship of the majority or the ones who can put in the most illegal votes. How many of you believe he's, the verse mentions three members of the Trinity? Raise your hand. I've got a few hands. All right, how many believe it's two? How many believe it's only one? We just have two people, three people, who believe it's only one. But it says God and Christ Jesus. You look at that in the English, it's clear. The Father and Christ Jesus. Now, as this book was written, it was his last book, I have found the Greek is more complex in this book than most of the other books that I've looked at that are Paul's. In addition, as he getting to the end, it becomes even more complex. I was having trouble with coming up to so I went to Weist, who's my fallback authority on Greek, and I looked at Kenneth Weist's book on this, and he said, It's only speaking of one member of the Trinity, and that's Jesus Christ. And he said, if you translate this properly, they didn't translate it properly in English. Maybe the best way to, in the presence of God, even Jesus Christ, or even Christ Jesus. And that's the way we should understand it. Why? Because we're going to see in a minute, this verse is all about Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's the one that Paul deals with. That's the one Paul wants to make sure we understand. So it's Jesus Christ. One of the reasons he wants us to see that and understand that is this. Who is the one that was tempted just like us and yet without sin? Who is the one who's going to provide us a means to escape any temptation that comes to us? Jesus Christ. And he wants us to focus on him because he is the center of who and what we are. He is our bridegroom, our future husband. And so we need to understand that. Now, in in coming to that conclusion, we then see... This next phrase, who is to, who is to judge. I want you to see that. This means, this word means is to. You think this is just a transition. It doesn't really have that much meaning. Oh, yes, it does. Because what it's talking about here is to be about or to be on the point of doing. Jesus is on a, about on the point of doing what? Judging, judging. Now, we need to to look at that just a second. This word, to judge, can mean several things, but the concept really is separating, putting asunder, to pick out, select, or choose. He's dividing up. Now, what is the first judgment? How many judgments is Jesus involved in? Mara says three. How many did you say, Don? I think I'll go with two. Uh, I thought you'd learn by now to listen to your wife. Oh, you just wanted to create a little controversy. Yes, I know. All right. Number one, there is a judgment that will occur. We don't know exactly the time, but the start of that judgment is the rapture. That's a separation. The church is taken out. We're going to study that at length uh, in some coming weeks. Now, once we get up there... We will be judged. It's called the Bemis Seat Judgment. You say, wait a second. I thought our sins were covered. I thought our sins had already been paid for. Why am I going to be judged? Your sins already have been paid for. You're not going to be judged for your sins, but there's going to be rewards. Rewards. And we need to understand that there can be a lot of rewards for some people and very few, maybe. For others. We are going to use the things that we are given. To praise God. And some of us maybe will feel a little insufficient. In addition to that there's not just rewards. There's authority. You'll be given positions of rulership in the kingdom. Now. During at the end of the seven year period of tribulation. There's a second judgment. It's the judgment of the nations. And they will be divided. And they will be put many of them in Haiti, Sheol, and only those who are true believers who have made it through the tribulation will go into the kingdom from a purely human side that haven't been already glorified. And then, at the end of that millennial kingdom and one final revolt, there will be something called the Great White Throne Judgment, a time of horror if you're on the wrong side of the throne. And those three judgments... Who will be sitting on the great white throne? Who will be sitting at the beam of seat of Christ? Who will make the decision and the judgment of the nations? Jesus Jesus Christ. A lot of people think, oh no, God the Father. No, Jesus Christ will. Do we have any proof of that from the scriptures? Well, if we were to look at Romans 2, verse 16, it says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now notice that. Through Christ Jesus. Does anybody have a recollection of that word through in the Greek? Do you remember that? We talked about that in verse 15. It's dia. And if it's genitive and its object is genitive, what does that mean? Bonnie, what does it mean? (laughs) Yes, it also means though genitive of means or instrumentality. Who is going to be judging Christ Jesus, according to that verse? If you look again, say in John 5.30, he says, I I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we need to see, there are three judgments coming, and this charge is made. Here, that we need to see the charge is made on the basis first being in the presence of Jesus Christ under his gaze constantly. Secondly, he is the judge who's going to be making the judgments. He will be judging you and he'll be judging everybody in the world. In fact, who does he judge? The living and the dead. That's everyone. And so, the next thing he's going to talk about in this charge is I charge you. By the appearance of Christ Jesus. What does it say? By His appearing. Now, this is of course after His first advent. This is after the time that He spent here on earth. What appearing is He talking about? Is He talking about the rapture? Or is He talking about the second coming? Which do we think That's not an easy question to answer right away, is it? Well, let me tell you. First, let's look at this word. The word is epiphania. And epiphania means an appearing or an appearance. And it really is about something that literally means a shining forth. When Jesus comes to rapture us... Will unbelievers see Him? Well, is He coming to the earth? No. He is going to meet us where? In the clouds. In the clouds. That is behind where anybody else can see. And will we be lingering there? No, sir. no, it will be in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. So it is not the rapture. Now, we say that, and that's a reasonable argument. Is there any passages that would indicate something to differ with that? Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8. Then that lawless one. Now who is the lawless one? The antichrist. The who one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. When Jesus comes back, a sword will be in his mouth, which is a two-edged, and it will be his breath, and he will slay the Antichrist with that sword from his uh, mouth. You know, he can say, live, with that breath, and someone who was dead lives. He can say, die, and someone who's alive will die. But notice what it says at the end, with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end, by what? By means, here again, Uh, Dia, genitive of means by the appearance of his coming here it speaks of the appearance that's what this is now one more thing i thought might be interesting when it happens are we told there'll be an appearance well to find that out you look in revelation chapter 19 and i saw the heavens opened now When the heavens are open, who gets to see? Everyone. That's certainly going to be an appearance. What kind of appearance will it be? I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one can know except himself. Now I've often wondered if I would be able to talk Julie when the day comes, just get kind of next to him and cuddle with him, and say, "What does that name really mean?" But I doubt she'll do that because he won't tell. But she always gets me to tell her. I don't. I, so I figure, all right, enough foolishness. Let's go on. We see that appearance. Is there anything else that he is charging or commanding by? His kingdom. Now, I have to tell you again, that's a bad translation. I don't know, understand why. I looked at various experts on this word thinking, how can it be that these people mistranslate that? And it seems different to me. Maybe I'm wrong. So I look at weist and I look at other places. This word is Basileia, and what it means is this, royal power, kingship, dominion, rule, not to be confused with an actual kingdom, but rather the right or authority to rule over the kingdom. You begin to see it's not this coming kingdom that he's talking about, instead it's Jesus' right to rule in that kingdom. Who gave him that right? God, the father, where do you find that Daniel chapter seven? And you begin to see in Daniel chapter seven, the son of man is given that kingdom. It talked about that kingdom in what other chapter before then? Remember in Daniel chapter two, and it was described as the rock cut out without hands. And so this kingdom, it has to speak of his right to rule. And that's what's more important. Not that the kingdom's coming. Because the kingdom is all about who? Jesus. If you look back on this passage now, you begin to see, what is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. So, let's go back just a second. I want you to see this. His appearance, I would translate his kingship. Not kingdom, but his kingship. His right or authority. Now... This verse is all about Jesus, and we need to understand that. It's talking about his presence. It's talking about his judgment. It's talking about his coming again, his second advent, and it's talking about his establishment of his kingdom and his right to rule. That's what this verse is about. Those are all key important events, are they not, in the history of this world and that is the basis of this charge that he's giving to Timothy. So what is he charging Timothy to do? This is the charge setting it up. What is he charging him to do? Well, and us in that, in that manner. And what is the reach of the charge? That's the question I want to ask next. You see, Paul is looking forward to his execution. He knows that it may not be pleasant at all. In fact, when we get a little farther in chapter four, he's gonna say this For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Has come. He's saying that in a way that it, by the time you get this letter, Timothy, I may already be in heaven. Now, why is he being so solemn about this charge? Who and what is Paul responsible for? Paul is responsible for the churches he and his team had planted in Syria, in Asia Minor, in the Grecian Peninsula, and even beyond in Rome. Does he feel accountable for those churches? Let's look, because this is something he repeats all the time. Starting in Acts 15, 41 and Paul was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Why? He helped plant them. He's now strengthening them. He's passing through and In verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. He was there helping with the growth of those churches. In Romans 16, 3, and 4, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's the upper or northern part of the Grecian Peninsula. And finally... In 2 Corinthians 11.28, he's talking about all the bad things that have happened to him. And he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Yes, he is greatly concerned of the churches. What's going to happen when he's gone? Will Timothy persevere? I believe that he was putting Timothy... In his place. You're responsible for these churches now Timothy. Will you do it? Will you persevere? Or will you give up? Will you quit? Many scholars I've read. Hold that position. That Paul is passing this responsibility. On to Timothy. What a solemn charge. Now. What is he telling them to do? Second Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, uh, exhort with great patience and instruction. This verse is also in very complex Greek. But what are we talking about? The first thing you look at when you're talking about actions like this, look at the verbs. You've got five verbs here. Preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Do you know what mood those verbs are all in? Are they questions, recommendations, are they commands? They are. And all of those are commands. Now, sometimes I find there's a little prejudice in how things are translated. I would say a vast majority of our translators are evangelists, pastors, pastors seminary scholars type one not just the, the normal people in the church now when you see that first word preach what do you think of? Well, you think of Sunday morning the guy standing behind the pulpit and preaching the word of God when Timothy saw this word in the Greek he didn't think of that what did he think of? he thought of the imperial herald Who would come to the community, gather everyone around and say, this is what the emperor says. Or maybe if it's even more important, if there was an ambassador to that particular area, you would listen to what the ambassador, this is what my emperor says. And you know, basically Rome ruled the world at that time. Let me tell you what this word is. This word is caruso. Doesn't have to do with any opera singer. This is a Greek word, caruso, and it means to be a herald, to officiate as a herald or an ambassador, and, to do, and is as one to publish or proclaim openly. Now, am I a preacher? No. Don, are you a preacher? Not quite. Don, are you a preacher? No. So, you translate it preach, that excludes everyone here. There may be a few preachers in here, but I'm not. But if it means a herald or an ambassador, does that include you, Steve? Yes. Does that include you, Don? Yes, sir. It includes me. It includes you, Don. It includes all of us. This is a passage and a proclamation that goes way beyond just Timothy. This is all of us. Well, you say, how do I know that I'm supposed to be a herald or I'm supposed to to, to know this? Well, if you were to look, Paul has said, I am an ambassador for Christ. You, We are all his ambassadors. I want you to think about this carefully. We all live here in the United States. From God's perspective, am I a citizen of the United States? I am an alien. I am just passing through in, in clear Texan. What we've got here is I'm an ambassador or a herald that he has sent me here and you, to proclaim His message. And we need to come to understand that that is the first part of this charge that we need to see. And we have the authority of the King of the universe to say what we're going to say. So if someone wants to tell us we can't say it, we don't respond rudely. But we say what Peter and John said, whether we should obey men Rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking of the things we have seen and we have heard. That's the way we have to respond to that. Now, what is he telling us to proclaim? What? The word. Now, here again, that's a phrase with that definite article. It's put in there when he says the word. That means you should know what I'm talking about. When he just says the word. What is we just finished studying? 3, 16 and 17. What does it say? Does it tell us what the word is? Yes Yes, it does. That's what he's saying. The entire canon of the scripture. That's what I'm referring to. That which was breathed out by God. Uh, The Lord's herald. Is not to choose. His own message. The herald is provided the message by the sovereign. And we need to understand, we need to know God's message. How can the herald deliver God's message if he doesn't know the message? Can't. Yes. He's a failure. Yes, sir. At the time that this was written, uh, the Word, when the Word in the Old Testament. and be more than that. When you, at, at that time, yes. At, at that time... How many books did Paul write totally, Gary? Thirteen. How many had been written by that time and disseminated? Twelve. Other books have been written now. Some of the writings of John hadn't been written by 67 AD, but a large number of other books had been written, and I think it's the entire Scripture. God has to make a statement, Gary, at one point in time because we are bound in time. He's not. And so I think it's all of the canon not just the Old Testament, when I see that. Because he's saying all of the Scripture is God-breathed, and certainly these are canonical, these books. Julie? Oh, yes. If you leave the Old Testament out, you're violating all Scripture. It's one book. One book, 66 chapters, so to speak. 66 books. Now, the next thing he says is to be ready. Be ready. That means to be at hand, to be ready. This word is used in Greek literature to speak of a soldier uh, being ready to go into battle at a moment's notice, Uh, a guard who is constantly on the alert for a surprise attack. Maybe a modern example would be the fire department. If you've ever taken a kid through the fire department, one of those fire stations, they'll show you. Here's the pole. We slide down. Our pants are right there. We jump in and put the spenders. The boots are right there. Everything is right there. We are in a moment's notice in that fire truck out towards the fire. Rapidity. They practice it. They know it well. That's this concept. You have to be ready. You need to know you're standing in God's presence. What he's, His gaze is on you. I think a good biblical example is the angel Gabriel. What is the angel's Gabriel's, what was his primary purpose? He was a messenger. When God, no, a herald is, is good. What is angel means messenger? Herald is exactly the same thing. Whose messages would he carry? God's. And in fact, He had a message for Zechariah, And Zechariah really ticked him off because he said, I don't think I really believe you. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now that phrase, who stands in the presence of God, is important. That is what... The chief slave or chief person in a king's court or in a person, you follow him around. And when he says, go do this, then you go do it. You're ready. You're listening. Many times that person and the sovereign could communicate with just a look or glance. Oh, and then then he knows exactly what to do. You know what that means. All right. I think that's good. I'm glad that you're getting trained like that. It would be... Make the world a better place. and so he stands ready to do God's bidding at any time he commands. He's saying the same things for us. We need to be ready. If that idiot on the second, if that idiot on the phone calls and says, You know you want to sell your home, be ready not to sell your home. But speak for him, yes, Dams. At, at one time he was. At one time he was, and it's interesting. There's, we're going to get to a discussion of Michael in that regard. Because he was above Michael. Top angel. The number one. And we'll get to that here a little, in just a few minutes. When do we have to be ready? Well, it says it. In season and out of season. In season and out of season. Now, let me give you a dumb example. I thought one time, You know, I like to cook. Wouldn't it be cool to make some apricot jam? I love apricots, and I wanted to make some apricots. So I did the research, and I bought all the paraphernalia you need to to bottle that. And I tasted it after I made it. I said, that's really pretty good. And I thought, you know what? I need to have an independent. I'm going to give a jar to Jessica and Dewey and see what they think about it. And Dewey calmly said, you ought to sell this stuff, it's great. And I thought, that's wonderful. I'm going back to the store and get a bunch more apricots. I'm gonna make a whole bunch. And I got to the store, sorry, we don't have any apricots. Why not? Because I happened to go there the first time at the end of the season and it's out of season now. Now, the one who would be making apricot jam in a professional level would be prepared, and they would have gotten apricots and frozen them. I didn't. But the action here, or the concept is, whatever the season, what do these words really mean? This word, eukairos, it means seasonably or opportunely, when the opportunity occurs. We've got to be proclaimed God's word when the opportunity occurs. Not when you want to, not when you schedule it, but whenever the opportunity occurs. You could be eating breakfast at a little German food restaurant and the opportunity will occur. You could be on the phone and the opportunity occurs. You could be in an Uber and the opportunity will occur. You don't know when the opportunity is going to occur, but you can be pretty certain that Satan will try and work it. You don't have a Bible in your hand. So the only Bible you got was in your heart or on your phone. And so... What we need to understand is that this other word, kairios, is unseasonably or inopportune. I can remember saying, God, I don't want to do this now. Are you sure you want me to do this? Yeah. In season and out of season, always ready for the call. That's what we need to make sure we understand. He's talking about this proclamation. Now, the proclaimer is to include in his message reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. Reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. Reproof means to convict or confute, and it usually involves an emotional response. And it usually involves an emotional response to the positive when we reprove uh, using God's Word. Do you remember the first example I see of this in the New Testament is in Acts 2 when Peter is preaching at Pentecost and he's just finished and it says, and now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? You see, it was an emotional effect on them what they heard and they are ready to go to do what needs to be done to respond favorably to the change. Rebuke. a little different term. Rebuke is o, and it means to reprove, to censor severely, or to admonish. This action involves usually a mental or a logical effect to point out the error in one's behavior and even to suggest a penalty for continuance of this type of behavior. It is more of a reasoned approach. Now, it's interesting. This type of reasoned approach usually is unsuccessful in changing anybody's mind. And yet, it still needs to be there so that God can use it if He wants to. Now, it's interesting. One example I would think of this would be when Michael was sent to the mountain where Moses had passed away to recover his body and take it to heaven. Why? Because he's going to be raised from the dead, I believe, in, during the tribulation period as one of the two witnesses. Satan was also aware of that, and he met Michael there, and they disputed over the body. Now, how do you know this? Does it say that in Genesis or Exodus or any of those? No. But if you go down to Jude chapter 1... Verse nine, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued over the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Was Michael in a position of power over Satan at this time? No. That's why he's saying the Lord rebuke you. Uh, The Lord is not me. I don't have the power. To do this to take you on one on one. He didn't dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. Boy, does he is there a railing judgment that's accurate? Absolutely. But he didn't dare to do it because he didn't have the power. He used the Lord's power, the Lord rebuked you, and he did take the body. We saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Will that ever change? Yes. How do you know? Does it say he's elevated over Satan? Well, in a manner of speaking, look in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and 9. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. Who's now the strongest? Michael, who faithfully serves as the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. And the great dragon, there was no place found for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world and he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. No longer could he accuse anybody in the presence of God because he no longer was allowed in heaven and Michael had superior strength. Michael did not make an emotional charge but a reasoned one and the rebuke will often be rejected. But both of these terms call for speaking in stern language against sin. But the next term is the opposite of that. Exhort. Exhortation. pericaleo, And it means to call to one's side, or to address or to speak with comfort, instruction, and the like. This word carries the idea of beseeching or urging, to persuade one who is errant or lost, to come into a direct path. It's interesting. We've talked about apostate churches. These three actions give you a excellent grade or or evaluation method for whether a church is becoming apostate or not. What do you mean? Well, you see apostate churches, they don't want to drive away any of their congregants. And they want visitors to all join. They want to grow their church. That's all about it. And they hire these church growth gurus to do it. But to do that, they can't make it uncomfortable for people to come to church. And so what you see is, do you see a lot of exhortation in those churches? No. Yes, you do. They want to exhort you, to comfort you, to make you feel welcome, to make you feel apart. Do you see reproving and rebuking? No, no they don't. So, If you're wanting to judge a pastor or a preacher on where he stands on these things, listen, does he only exhort or do you find that he reproves and rebukes? That's a good test to be able to tell. That's the test that Paul gives us right here. Now, understand that these last four verbs all speak of the manner of one's proclamation as the herald or the ambassador. And does this apply To us or just to those specially gifted by God? Well, look in the verse I quoted to you before, but now you can see whether I said it correctly or not. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Why? Because we have been born again. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So, Is the ambassador who is in the consulate of China in Washington, D.C., a United States citizen? No. The ambassador from China? No. He's not. What, What nation is he a citizen of? When he was introduced, he's saying he is introduced as the ambassador of the People's Republic of China. Why? He is bearing their name. He speaks for them. Whether you like it or not, you are bearing Jesus' name. If you're a Christian, that means Christ in one. You are the ambassador. And I can tell you, as the ambassador of Christ, the government that he represents doesn't desert you and let you be uh, assassinated uh, unless he wants to bring you home right away. Unlike some other countries or one particular one. Now, let's look at the final part of this verse. With great patience and instruction. Now the first thing I want us to try and determine is, and understand the Greek in this term, preach the word is the first of a command. The end of the command is with great patience and instruction. The things in between are part of preaching the word With patience and instruction doesn't just apply to exhort. It applies to everything in there. All of those statements. If you look, for example, in uh, O. Weist, he would give you an indication. Although he's kind of iffy. You go to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, New Testament version. It specifically says it's to the entire verse. And so we need to see that. With great, or sometimes you could translate the word all patience. Uh, you could name great patience or all, or all are in every situation patience and instructions. What do those two words mean? You're preaching the word and you're preaching it with patience. That means you're patient when you're reproving, rebuking, or exhorting. You need to see that because this word is important to understand In its meaning, this concept of patience. And that is that it is long-suffering, but it's also constancy. You are keeping the same things. It's constancy. Now, what does that last word mean? Instruction. It does. It means teaching. If you are following this admonition, proclaiming the word as a herald, being ready in season and out, what will the content of your proclamation include? When it's over, what should you say? Have I been taught anything? If you can say yes, then this proclamation and this admonition is being followed. If you can say, I didn't really learn anything. Well, maybe next time. But if the next time and the next time, I didn't learn anything, it's not being followed. Now, what should you do? Now, some people would say, leave the church. Others would say, doesn't that have something to say about patience? We need to start praying for the, the person who's doing the proclaiming, who's doing the teaching, to see if God will change them, if he will get them to the point where they can start allowing you to teach. Now, let's look back before we finish. I want us to look back at the charge. Gary, do you know the watchword of Dallas Theological Seminary and where it comes from? The word. Preach the Word. Right? Preach the Word. That's what Dallas Theological Seminary was found on. What is it? Keraton ton logon. Preach the Word. It comes exactly from this verse. something like preach truth. It's not the same. That's a shame, isn't it? When you say preach the Word... The one who's being involved in that should know what the word means. Paul's charge set out in one verse that one reminds both Timothy and us that we are under the constant gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the ultimate judge. We need to remember that the foundation of true ministry of God is always the word of God. And you really can't be an effective minister without the word of God. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion to you that you consider. We've talked about judgment. We've talked about the word. We've talked about ministry. We've talked about obedience. Let's do this. I would like I would like to re- you to day sometime find a time today to reenact a future event. Now, that sounds like that doesn't make sense. Reenact. You reenact a past event. But no, the one we're talking about doesn't live in time. And it's a future event he told us is going to happen at the Bema Seat of Christ. And I would suggest we sit down and reenact a future event. Let me explain to you what that is. You stand before God one day and he restates all that he has done for you. And then he asks, and you put in your name, Doug, what have you done for me? And I'm going to suggest that you set aside a time to think over and ponder what your answer will be, because you don't have to make your answer today, but there will come a time when you will have to make an answer. What will you say? That's rather concerning, is it not? Especially if you're making a comparison of what he's done for you versus what you've done for him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here today. And I thank you for how much you love us and the mercy that you've shown us all. Now, Father, help us to think through what it is we have done for you. Whether we've ever considered this charge of proclaiming the word, being ready to do it whenever... You urge us to, and whenever the opportunity arises, with patience and with instruction. We know to do that, we have to know the Word. have to be prepared. Help us to work on our preparation and our understanding of your message. And Father, I want to pray for our nation. And you know that our nation has been training its children for several generations that you don't exist that anyone who believes in you is a fool and uneducated, that you've, they've tried to do everything they can to remove you from government, remove you from education, remove you from business, remove you from the media, remove you from the entertainment industry, remove you from the legal profession, the medical profession, everything they can to do that, Father. And yet, have they gone too far? Father, what I'm asking you to do today is to intervene in the life of our nation and to bring judgment and condemnation to those who are leading us in this sin. You know better than we do who those leaders really are. And do it in such a way that it's public and that people have to say that was from God because it couldn't have been from anyone else. And I pray that you return the fear of you to our people so they will realize the gravity of the decisions they're making in relation to you and the rebellion to you and that you will turn us back to you. Father, restore our nation. Give us one last chance. We certainly don't deserve it. And I hope we haven't gone too far. But I pray you show mercy to us one last time. I pray these things in the name of your Son, listening for the sound of your trumpet. Amen.